Welcome. You are listening to Central Synagogue's podcast, featuring sermons, lectures, and conversations from Manhattan's historic Central Synagogue. I'm Rabbi Angela Bookdahl. We hope you will engage with the wisdom of our tradition and our take on current events, as interpreted by the clergy, teachers, and guest lecturers of Central Synagogue. You can also access our weekly sermons by subscribing to this podcast on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to learn more about our congregation or watch our live stream services, I invite you to visit us at centralsynagogue.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us this morning for this really incredible opportunity for this important conversation. I'm Rabbi Sarah Berman. I'm the Director of Adult Education here at Central Synagogue. And uh, this is this really is a watershed moment that we are seeing in, in our beloved Israel. And I am so appreciative that you all care so much about what's going on to show up and engage with these questions. This morning, you'll be able to uh, ask questions, have your questions answered by Michael Koplow from the Israel Policy Forum. So please leave your questions in the chat box. Um, we are going to ask that everybody except for, uh, for our, our speaker and our moderator to remain on mute through the conversation just so that we can hear uh, what they have to say. Um, we'll share the, your questions with our guest at the very end of the program this morning. So it is my pleasure now to introduce you to someone that you may not have met yet. Rabbi Joy Levitt is the Interim Director of Adult Engagement for Central Synagogue. She is um, already such an incredible part of our team. She'll be our, our host and our moderator this morning. Joy, please take it away. Thank you, Sarah. And I want to thank you, Sarah and Marina from the adult engagement team for organizing um, this morning's very important discussion. I think the numbers on the Zoom testify to a deep and abiding interest at Central Synagogue for what's happening in Israel. I want to begin by thanking our guest, Michael Koplow, uh, who is the senior policy director at the Israel Forum, um, which, as you know, is dedicated. Um, to advancing the goal of a two-state outcome in order to preserve Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and safe. Michael is a great friend um, to the Jewish people um, of mine, um, and, um, and time, unfortunately, does not allow me to cite his many articles and accomplishments, but I would refer you to his Koplo column, um, which you can find on the Israel Policy Forum website. He was a great friend to Central Synagogue, has done this with us before at these kind of watershed moments, as Sarah said. And we're grateful, Michael, to you for agreeing to join us on such short notice um, during what is um, an extremely challenging time um, for those of you who are engaged uh, deeply in this work. I want to start by acknowledging that today is Tisha B'Av. It is the ninth of Av, the darkest day on the Jewish calendar, when we commemorate the destruction of the temples in Jerusalem brought about, at least according to some rabbinic commentators, 
because of the senseless hatred between Jews. Much has been said and will probably continue to be said all day today about the coincidence of the state and the internal fighting in Israel right now. And I'd like to come back to that in a bit. But now, Michael, for those of us who have had a hard time understanding exactly what has happened and how we got to this terrible moment, could you give us the background to the vote in the Knesset this weekend and kind of bring us up to date? Sure. So thank you, Joy, and, and thanks to Central Synagogue for hosting, uh, which I'm, I'm always honored to participate in. So uh, on Monday, uh, as everybody here presumably knows, the Knesset voted 64 to nothing to eliminate the Supreme Court's ability to use reasonableness in judging government decisions, judging cabinet decisions, uh, and judging decisions of individual ministers. So how did we get how did we get to this spot and why is it uh, why is it such a big deal? So when the Netanyahu government for, first took office in late December, they announced that they would be undertaking uh, what's now familiar to all of us, uh, a judicial overhaul. And there were a number of elements that were in the judicial overhaul. There were uh, there were five main ones that Justice Minister Yariv Levine announced six days after the government took power uh, and eliminating the reasonableness standard for judging government decisions was one of these five things that he said the government was going to do. It was not, however, the first thing that the government proceeded with um, because the reasonableness standard was not considered to be the top priority. The top priority for the government was changing the way in which judges are selected in Israel. And so um, the early fight was over the Judicial Selection Committee. And um, the protests that started way back in January, we're now seven months in, uh, started over this issue mainly of the Judicial Selection Committee, the idea that the government would have power over selecting all the judges in Israel without uh, without any check. And as the government started to pass, uh, pass legislation, that's what they focused on. And that led to the clash in the spring where Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, announced that he was firing Defense Minister Yoav Gallant because Yoav Gallant had spoken out against the efforts to change the Judicial, judicial Selection Committee. Uh, that's when the protests really reached their peak. You had hundreds of thousands of people who turned out literally in the middle of the night to protest the, the Gallant firing. And then two days later, Netanyahu went on television and announced that he was suspending the entire process. Uh, and instead, there were going to be negotiations under the auspices of President Buji Herzog to figure out how to move forward in some sort of uh, consensus. Those negotiations took place during the Knesset recess uh, over uh, over the, the Passover, the Pesach break, uh, and kept on going. And um, while those negotiations were ongoing, there was no movement on the judicial overhaul proposal, not on the Judicial Selection Committee, and, and not on the reasonableness standard. So what happened next? What happened next was uh, partially the fault of the government and, and I think partially the fault of the opposition. Um, the Judicial Selection Committee, uh, which had not been transformed, has to meet. Uh, and in order to meet, uh, it had to have two representatives from the Knesset because the current Selection Committee has three judges, two members of the Israel Bar Association, two ministers, and two members of Knesset. Those two members of Knesset get elected by the Knesset. And so the Knesset went to elect the two members who would be representatives on the committee. <clears throat> and when they went to elect the two members, uh, the process got a bit fouled up. Um, 
normally there are there's one one person elected from the coalition and one person from the opposition uh but this time uh members of the prime minister's coalition were openly saying that they didn't think any opposition members should be elected and so a number of them were running and uh it was contributing to a, a situation where it was going to be possible that an opposition member would not get elected and that was going to throw everything into a crisis and so netanyahu tried to engineer a situation in which nobody would be elected because there's an arcane rule that if only two people are running um you vote either for or against and uh if the people get more votes against than for then nobody gets elected um instead his his plans went awry the opposition candidate indeed got elected to the committee but the coalition candidate did not um it's unclear whether netanyahu engineered engineered that or not uh it's unclear whether members of his coalition uh voted against his preferred candidate without without telling him as a way of signaling their displeasure but in any event the coalition candidate didn't get elected which means that the judicial selection committee was one person short uh at which point it was not going to be convened and the opposition leaders Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid who had been uh, participating in the negotiations at the president's residence at that point said that they were breaking off negotiations uh because until the judicial selection committee could actually be convened they weren't going to negotiate um I think they they did that out of a sense that they were in a position of strength but the impact that it had was that once the negotiations were suspended Netanyahu and his government announced that they were going to move forward with the judicial overhaul again uh and this time they decided decided to start with this reasonableness clause the the um theory being that the reasonableness clause was the least controversial of the things on the table and so this moves it moves forward and it passed 64 to nothing uh on on Monday and uh, as i mentioned what it does is it removes the power of the courts to judge not legislation but uh government action administrative decisions either by the full cabinet or by individual ministers uh, according to this reasonableness standard uh up until up until monday the the court was able to strike down decisions that it found to be extremely unreasonable going forward it cannot do that uh and and the way in which it was passed and i'm sure we'll get to this um also creates sort of um the next crisis yeah i mean i want to stand this reasonableness clause because for americans um this this sounds a little fuzzy and hazy and i guess in the in the larger scheme of things many people both on the right and the left um have said that the israeli supreme court needed to be reformed um that didn't seem like it was only a a a a kind of right of center position so if that's the case why was this why wasn't this why did this become so contentious when a lot of israelis believe that the the supreme court needed to be reformed So you are correct many Israelis view the Supreme Court um and the judiciary in general as something that needs to be to be reformed or, or overhauled in in some way shape or form. Um the problem is that the reform that the government announced when it took power wasn't really an effort to address some of the the problems or some of the perceived overreach it was an effort to completely shift the balance of power 
over to the government entirely and to make it um, difficult and in some cases impossible for the judiciary to have any oversight of the government at all. Now, there's always a debate to be had in any system, in any democracy, about where the balance of power should lie. But in Israel, it's a bit more difficult than in other places because Israel is distinctive in a number of ways. The first way in which it is distinctive is that Israel has no constitution. It's one of only three democracies in the world that does not have a written constitution. And so that means that checks and balances that exist in constitutional systems, such as our own here in the United States, don't exist in Israel in the same way. <clears throat> to the extent they exist, they are more a function of common law. They're more a function of the courts uh, over time, uh, really assuming powers for itself that will act as a check on the government. The second way in which Israel is distinctive is that it is a parliamentary democracy with only a with a unicameral legislature, only only one chamber. And what that means is that the there is no check between, for instance, in our system, the House and the Senate. There is no possibility of one chamber being held by one party and one chamber being held by another. Um, in Israel, there's only one chamber. And furthermore, because it's a parliamentary system, that one chamber collapses the executive and the legislature into one branch. So in this country and in Israel as well, although wrongly, as I'll get to in a minute, uh, we talk about three branches of government, right? We talk about the executive, which here would be the president and all of the government agencies. We talk about the legislative, which here would be Congress. And we talk about the judiciary. In Israel, you have a 120 person Knesset and the same... If the only issues are of law, then the judge can decide. Sorry, um, the the same majority that forms the uh, that forms the coalition that controls the Knesset also forms the government. So right now, the current coalition has sixty four seats out of one hundred twenty in the Knesset, uh, which is how you got to the the sixty four to nothing vote the other day. Uh, the opposition members all walked out in protest, but even if they hadn't, it would have passed. 64 to 56. The same, like this, the same 64 people who control the Knesset then also elect the prime minister and, and form the government. So you don't actually have a separate executive and legislative branch. You have one. Um, when those two are collapsed into one, then the only check on the government becomes the judiciary. And so um, upsetting that balance in Israel becomes a bigger deal than if you do something in the United States, for instance, to, to upset that balance. And so if you take if you take some of these individual components of the judicial overhaul piece by piece, um, some of them look worse than others, but some of them don't look don't look particularly radical. Um, and, you know, I, I'd say up top that the the reasonableness clause is one of the ones that uh, on the face of it does not look particularly radical. The question is, what happens next? And if you pass the whole package or even part of the package, then you are in a fundamental way reordering the system of checks and balances in Israel based on an election. And I think that's that's why people view this view this as, uh, as such a big deal. Um, I'll also note that there were different versions of the reasonableness law that could have been passed. Um, the one that was passed is a pretty broad one, um, not the broadest one that possibly exists, um, but a relatively broad one. And 
there, you know, there probably would have been a way to pass this even just with the government's votes and nobody from the opposition uh, in a way that would have been less controversial had they narrowed its scope a bit. I want to um, move to uh, the relate this so-called special relationship between um, the United States and and Israel, and refer you to Tom Friedman's column this week in the New York Times, the title of which was "Only Biden Can Save Israel Now." Um, as you know, it was an open letter to our president that argued that Netanyahu's coalition undermined our shared values and strategic interests. I, w- I wonder if you agree. Um, how do you see the role of the United States um, right now in this critical juncture? And how seriously damaged is this special relationship, if at all? So to start with the question about um, how damaged is the relationship, and then I'll talk about what, what I think the role of the United States is. Uh, so... I don't think that um, I don't think that the U.S. Israel relationship is going to look or feel damaged tomorrow or next month or next year. You know, we are obviously in uh, and evidently in a period of tension between the two sides. Uh, I think anybody anybody who's who's been watching understands uh, that there is tension between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu. It's manifested uh, most starkly in the fact that the Prime Minister has not been invited for an Oval Office meeting and. Uh, the invitation that was extended last week when President Herzog was here to Prime Minister Netanyahu wasn't for an Oval Office meeting. It was to meet before the end of the year, um, which is uh, a very uh, purposely ambiguous <laughs> ambiguous way of putting it. Uh, my, <laughs> my guess is that they will they will meet on the sidelines uh, of the UN General Assembly in September. Um, but I would be very surprised if uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, ends up taking that meeting in in Washington at the White House. Um, and so, you know, that's that's an obvious manifestation of it, but we've seen all sorts of statements from the president, from the secretary of state, from members of Congress, um, expressing concerns over the judicial overhaul and, and what it does to the U.S.-Israel relationship in terms of shared values. Um, so, you know, we've seen that. We've seen other periods of tension in U.S.-Israel relations. You know, I, I don't think that this one is um, particularly, uh, particularly fraught, um, certainly not unique. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that there isn't danger. Um, and actually, but what I, what I wrote about for my column today, it'll come out probably in an hour. Um, the reason that the U.S.-Israel relationship is special, what makes it unique, is this idea of shared values, shared democratic values. Otherwise, the U.S. and Israel would have a security relationship like the U.S. has with plenty of other countries. Um, what makes the, the relationship here different isn't that it's just about security. It's not just about you know assistance or intelligence. It really goes down to all levels of government and society. It's why you have uh, people, governors leading trade missions to Israel nonstop. It's why you have sister city agreements with Israeli cities all across this country. Um, you know, there are all sorts of ways in which this relationship filters down beyond just the president uh, or and beyond just Congress. And the reason it filters down that way is because of this sense of shared affinity. If Americans no longer view Israel as sharing the same democratic values as the United States, all of those other things are going to go away over time. It's not going to be overnight. And it's and it's yeah. 
I always, I always hate, I, I hate the, I hate the metaphor of the frog, the frog boiling the pot, especially because actually, you know, I, I don't believe it's true. I feel like the frog would probably jump out before it gets to the boiling point. And let's not test it. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but if we're going to use that metaphor, even though I don't like it, um, that's what this is going to be like. You know, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to wake up one day and all of a sudden it'll be kind of starkly different from the day before. But it's going to take place over time, and it absolutely is going to erode the U.S.-Israel relationship. Now, I'm not suggesting it's going to happen simply because the Knesset eliminated the reasonableness standard on Monday. Um, but for many, for many Americans, certainly for many American Jews, you know, I say that based both on polls and, and anecdotally, and from all the time I spend speaking in the Jewish community, uh, there's a real sense that Israel's democracy is is some somehow damaged. Um, I think it's impossible for any Americans, Jewish or not, who are even just paying casual attention to this, um, to see hundreds of thousands of Israelis demonstrating in the streets um, week after week, month after month, and not have a sense that um, something is wrong with Israeli democracy. I think it's impossible to keep on absorbing the warnings from the president and members of Congress and not sense that something is going wrong with Israeli democracy and in this relationship. And once that idea gets cemented into people's minds, it is absolutely going to impact U.S.'s relations of that. I have no doubt. Um, and at some point, it's it's also going to impact even the, the military and security relationship. Um, we are very far away from the day where the United States is going to cut or condition security assistance to Israel, something that I should add, I, I think would be a very bad idea. Um, but, so you don't agree with Christoph's piece this week in the Times on that very subject in which he's quoting Dan Kurtzer and Yossi Bellin is suggesting that, that that aid isn't necessarily needed or very good for Israel. So um, I'm not sure that the aid, the way in which we give it is um, 100% needed. I'm not sure that Israel needs every, every dollar of the $3.8 uh, billion it gets every single year. Um, I do think that there are perhaps ways to restructure it not punitively to Israel, but to focus on the things that Israel actually does need. Um, you know, missile defense 100%, um, big ticket weapons items 100%, but um, does Israel need us to give them money for for jet fuel? Could that be used perhaps for something better? I, I think there's a, there's a debate to be had about that. Um, but I, I don't think it's a good idea at the moment to, to cut it, to condition it, um, to do any of this without, uh, without, uh, without a, real um, intense conversation with Israel um, about what its actual needs are and then figure out um, figure out how best to meet those needs. I want to remind everybody that the chat is open and people should feel free to put their um, questions in the chat. Um, I, I want to move to um, to the American Jewish community for a moment. Um, a major Jewish leader remarked to me recently that the Jewish community, still has access to the Israeli government, but no longer has influence. Um, and this week, Ron Lauder of the World Jewish Congress took out a full page ad in the New York Times to plead with Bibi and Gantz and, and Lapid to find a comp compromise. I found that curious. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, does anything the organized Jewish community say right now matter? Uh, and what should we as a Jewish community be doing now to support this country we love? I think that the organized Jewish community um, for decades has had less influence with Israeli leaders than, than we believe. <laughs> um, 
And I say that as the chief policy officer of an organization that was founded at the behest of an Israeli prime minister. Um, the Israelis, no matter, and it's not just this government, it's not just Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, I think that they uh, they oftentimes respect, uh, respect the opinion of American Jewish leaders. Um, I think that they certainly view American Jewish leaders as the key, uh, maybe not, maybe not this prime minister as much, but historically as the key to understanding what's going on in the United States, um, you know, and, and the key to helping with the U S government. Um, but I'm not sure that Israeli leaders have ever particularly cared or paid attention to what we on this side of the ocean think about their own internal politics, about their own internal situation. Um, and certainly now it doesn't seem as if uh, as if we're getting through and, you know, the the American Jewish community uh, and um, American Jewish organizations, you know, have not unanimously, but overwhelmingly um, been, uh, I don't want to say not in favor of the judicial overhaul, but have certainly cautioned uh, caution the government to to move move more slowly, make sure you have consensus, not to uh, not to not to break things entirely. Um, and certainly, uh, that has not been a factor in the Israeli government decision decision making or, or their calculus. Um, I think what we should be doing in this moment is appealing not only to the Israeli government and not only to Israeli leaders, but to the Israeli people. I think it's important for Israelis to understand that American Jews are still very much in the Zionist camp, are still very much pro-Israel, are connected to Israel, view Israel as uh, the Jewish homeland, um, and that we have a stake there because uh, I think it's important for many Israelis, for all Israelis to understand that we feel as if we have a stake in their future as well, um, both for Israel's sake and for the sake of how American Judaism develops here. So I think the first part is showing that that we support Israel. We are not going to walk away. We're not going to look at what's going on there and and wash our hands of it and and get up and uh, and turn our backs. Um, we are we are not just as invested in Israel's future as Israelis, but you know, just just a hairbreadth below. Um, so I think that's that's important. And at the same time, I think it's important for us to demonstrate that um, we stand with Israel because Israel, Israel is a democracy, um, and that you know, even as we always will have a connection to Israel as the Jewish state. Um, it would be naive to say that that connection won't be questioned if Israel is no longer democratic. Um, Israel, as, as Jewish and democratic, is the Zionist vision of Israel's founders, and it is the Zionist vision uh, of, of, I think, the overwhelming majority of American Jews. Uh, and uh, we're going to fight for that. And um, I think we need to keep on demonstrating that we have this voice and that we're going to use it. Um, and that it's because of our connection and love for the state of Israel and not because not because we want to force our opinions or our views on Israelis, um, but because the vision of Zionism that, that we hold so dear um, really, we believe, is an important, important component of, of Israel's past, present and future uh, to many Israelis. And that's who we stand in solidarity with. I hope everybody on this call has heard those that that call as our marching orders. I think we at Central Synagogue need to really think deeply as we have for so long about how we help one another maintain those uh, relationships. And I thank you for that, um, for that comment. Let's just spend a minute um, on the elephant in the room, right? Um, which is this expression Jewish and democratic has for 
a very long time been um, uh, challenged by um, the reality on the ground for Palestinians. And once again, um, in this huge upheaval in which, as you said, hundreds of thousands of people are on the street, um, in some way, once again, the Palestinians have been left out of this conversation. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Up until seven months ago, when we talked about Israel as Jewish and democratic, and we talked about the pressures on the democratic side, um, we were almost always talking about the Palestinians and the issue of Israel's 56 year and counting occupation of the West Bank. Um, that is the issue that in the long term is going to threaten Israel's democracy. It's important to understand in the context of the judicial overhaul, how this comes in, because there are different reasons that um, different reasons that different actors in the government want this judicial overhaul. For Prime Minister Netanyahu, I think it's almost certainly about his legal cases and uh, getting out of legal jeopardy. Um, Remarkably on similar, right? Our countries at this moment on that issue. Certainly have have echoes echoes of that <laughs> that here as well. Um, I'll note that yesterday, uh, a group of uh, 11, 11 Likud members, which constitutes a third of the entire Likud faction in the Knesset, introduced a private member bill to um, remove the attorney general's authority over, uh, over state prosecutions. Um, there was an uproar and the bill was withdrawn this morning, um, but I guarantee you that bill is coming back. Um, and that really could only be advanced in the wake of the reasonableness standard uh, being being eliminated. Um, because if the attorney general is fired or if the attorney general is stripped of some of her powers, that is the uh, exact type of thing that courts in the past would have prevented due to the reasonableness doctrine. Um, so for the prime minister, it's about his legal problems. But for uh, many many Likud members, and certainly for Hatsionut uh, Hadatit, the religious Zionism party led by Batsalos Motrich, the purpose of the overhaul is to um, make Israel's complete and, and permanent takeover of the West Bank uh, easier to do. Um, there are a number of things that this Israeli government put into its coalition agreements, uh, spearheaded by Basalo Smotrich and agreed to by Prime Minister Netanyahu, that cannot be done if the government's version of judicial overhaul does not go through. One of the things that the government would like to do is retroactively legalize illegal outposts in the West Bank. When I say illegal outposts, I mean outposts that are illegal under Israeli law, in contrast to the 132 settlements that are legal under Israeli law. Can't do that um, under current court guidance. Uh, it would like to build settlements on private Palestinian land. Uh, can't do that under current court guidance. So um, there are many things that this government is prevented from doing in the West Bank. And Smotrich in particular has been very clear that this is what he wants to do and that this is why the judicial overhaul is so important. So, you know, when we think about Israeli democracy and what is taking place, you know, the concerns at the moment that are front and center are about checks and balances and the balance of power and the power of the courts. But it's really important to remember that the overhaul itself is not an end, it's a means. And um, it is a means to an end that is going to, I fear, leave Israel permanently as a non-democracy because 
you simply cannot annex the West Bank, apply sovereignty to settlements, and not grant the Palestinians who are living there full citizenship. If you do that, then Israel is no longer democratic by any reasonable definition. And so um, for the Palestinians and for issues in the West Bank and for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, these deep issues still exist. You know, you asked earlier a question I didn't uh, I didn't answer, which was what's the proper role of the U.S. in this moment? My view is that um, obviously the U.S. has an interest in Israel staying fully democratic um, because of because of these shared values and because we want to protect the special relationship. But over the past half century, the overwhelming U.S. interest has been um, with regard to Israeli democracy has been uh, about how you figure out how to resolve the situation in the West Bank and ultimately how you get to leave Israel as Jewish, democratic and secure alongside a Palestinian sovereign entity, which um, should be a Palestinian state. That is the core U.S. interest when it comes to these issues. And um, I would like to see the United States focus much more of its efforts on that, um, continue to speak out, um, you know, in a very friendly fashion about the threats to Israeli democracy posed by the Jewish overhaul, but to not lose sight of the bigger picture here when it comes to U.S. interests. And the bigger picture here when it comes to U.S. interests is absolutely a two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Let's move to the protests, um, and then we'll we'll um, begin to open it up um, to all of your questions. Um, so um, it's interesting uh, that I suppose, to the extent that there was any strategy around these protests, there was a strategic decision to focus on the court and not on the Palestinians um, early on. I, I think that was not uniformly um, uh, agreed to, but many of us have watched in awe as hundreds of thousands of Israelis from every stream and every ethnic community um, have tirelessly demonstrated for weeks and weeks, months and months. Um, I told you earlier that I was struck by a video that Rabbi Nama Kilman of Hebrew Union College sent me uh, this week that showed young Israelis cleaning up Sacher Park um, in Jerusalem following a huge demonstration. There was literally not a cigarette butt on the ground hard to imagine a, a, a United States demonstration in Washington in which uh, that actually happened, but it felt like um, a metaphor for how deeply young Israelis feel about their country. So I, I noticed that there was not a demonstration yesterday, I, I, or I think not in, in the immediate aftermath of the Knesset vote. And I'm wondering um, about the your sense of, of the ability of um, the opposition to maintain this level of um, protest? And if not, what since this clearly, I shouldn't say clearly, but wasn't effective in, in getting the, the government to consider the lack of consensus in the country, what happens next? The government is counting on the demonstrations petering out. Uh, that's why it uh, when it picked things back up, um, it started with reasonableness, you know, again, on the theory that this was the least controversial aspect of the overhaul. Um, and you know, they they did what many of the folks in the opposition call the salami method. People are actually bringing packages of salami to protests. Uh, the idea being that you, you know, you instead of doing everything all in all in one fell swoop, you, you know, you slice things like a salami, right? Um, thin piece after thin piece after thin piece. 
Um, and then if you do it that way, you blunt some of the opposition and you take away the potency of the demonstrations. I don't think that that's going to work, uh, you know, based on um, based on what we saw in the lead up to the reasonableness law, um, where the demonstrations were larger than they had been. Um, I think what we're going to see next, aside from the continuing weekly demonstrations, and I um, I imagine that they will they will this Saturday night uh, eclipse even what they were what they were last week. Um, you know, what we're going to see uh, is. I think increasing uh, IDF reservists who reject their service. That was obviously part of the lead up to this, but I think that is likely to expand. Um, the protest leaders issued a statement uh, issued a statement today um, calling for uh, what they what they said is um, sort of moving moving from from a holding pattern to offensive action. Uh, you know, they stress that that always means nonviolence. But I think that you know, included in that, they are um, they're trying to get people um, to adopt the tax rebellion. Um, you know, not not pay their taxes. Um, you know, in addition to the increasing calls for uh, reservists not to not to serve, um, I think that we're probably going to see many more general strikes, um, many more localized strikes in different sectors. Um, and you know, all of this, all of this is going to increase the pressure on the government. Now, um, as you note, the government did not back down in the face of protests. Um, it also didn't back down in the face of the issues in the IDF. Although I'll note that next week there's supposed to be a number of classified briefings, uh, both in the Knesset Foreign and Affairs, uh, Defense and Foreign Affairs Committee, and also, uh, also in the Security Cabinet on the state of IDF preparedness. Um, so you know that may. That may start to become a bigger factor. We saw this week uh, a number of credit agencies and big banks um, issue written warnings uh, about the Israeli economy, including recommendations not to invest until further notice. <clears throat> I think that that is going to have an impact as well. Um, the government has dismissed all these things up until now, but I certainly do not think that the protests or the opposition are going away. I think they're only going to intensify. Uh, and Prime Minister Netanyahu at that point is going to have a, a real decision to make. Um, you know, whether he pushes forward in an effort to keep his government together, uh, or and whether he can withstand all this, or whether he chooses something different. Um, the government, the government is here until it calls new elections. There is no mechanism for anymore for replacing an Israeli government. Um, through a vote of no confidence. The only way to do it now uh, since 2015 is through what's called a constructive vote of no confidence, meaning you have to uh, vote no confidence in the government and then at the same time vote in a new government comprised of the current Knesset. So you have to form a coalition ahead of time. You can't just vote to bring it down. Um, and that means that the way governments are going to fall in Israel are from the inside. Um, so the prime minister does not have to call a new election for uh, for a little over three years. Um, so it's possible this government will will be there this long. If it is, it will only be because it has it has shunted aside any of the pressures and pushed this through. Um, my own view, and this is the minority view among most Israel analysts, is that the government is not going to last another three years. Um, but we'll see. Uh, it, it's I think I think the decisions for the government are only going to get more difficult going forward. So my my hardest question of all, I suppose, before we uh, open up to these excellent questions in the chat, um, give me some hope, Michael. What, what's the hope here? This is the question I've been I've been getting for for months on end. Um, 
So I think there, I think there are a few, a few things uh, that that leave me hopeful. Um, one is simply the response of Israelis. Uh, you know, Israelis are fighting for the vision of their country to which they hold dear. They are fighting for um, what they view is uh, is Israeli democracy, um, and they've been doing it for for months on end um, in increasing increasing numbers. And you know, I've been to the protests in Jerusalem. I've been to the protests in Tel Aviv. Um, they Tel Aviv, perhaps more than Jerusalem, but um, these are not monolithic protests. Um, it's not, you know, it's not only Ashkenazi elites. Um, it's not only secular folks. Um, you know, it really does cut across. You know, you see this both in polls and, and you also see it uh, at the protests and uh, in different places. Um, and so Israelis are standing up and, and they're fighting for what they believe in. And it's not just one one sector of Israelis. You know, the uh, the idea that that uh, this is all entirely the old secular Ashkenazi elite that founded the state trying to preserve what power it has left is absolutely false. Um, so, you know, that gives me that gives me a lot of hope. And anytime you see civil society and a democracy enacted this way or in a non-democracy enacted this way, um, I think, you know, I think it's a it's a very hopeful sign. Um, second, I think that this Israeli government uh Whatever you think of the need for judicial reform, and 100% some sort of reform is needed, um, there seems to be little question that the Israeli government uh, really overreached in a in a large way, um, and I think that that is going to inevitably produce a backlash among Israeli voters of all stripes um, to bring things back to the center for for a bit more moderation. <clears throat> You know, we talk all the time, it's almost a throwaway line now about, you know, this being the most right-wing government in Israel's history. I think that's true, but it's not simply that it's the most right-wing on all sorts of fronts, you know, whether it's the judicial overhaul issue, whether it's the Israeli-Palestinian issue, this government is orders of magnitude more extreme than previous right-wing governments. Um, and I think that that extremism is is is... It's going to take some time, but that extremism is going to have an impact in the Israeli system uh, in a way that, that counterbalances it, not only on the left and center, but I think eventually, I think eventually on the right. Um, and so we're going to be going through a tough period when it comes to when it comes to Israeli politics and Israeli decisions and frankly, the relationship between Israel and American Jews. Um, but I think we're going to recover from it. And it's partially because this government has gone so far and is so extreme. Um, that I think it will provide it will provide a, a pathway back um, once there is new leadership uh, inside of Israel. Okay, Sarah, I think we'll go to questions now. If you can, uh, <clears throat> I've been just looking in the chat. They're excellent. So it's yeah. been incredible questions from this from this community, um, Michael. The first question I'm going to ask you is. Um, uh, maybe the most basic about what happens next. This is coming from Lois and from Steve and from Lenny. So what does it mean that the Supreme Court will hear petitions in September about this law? And what happens if they rule against it? Will the Knesset ignore their ruling based on this new law? How will the prime minister react if the court rejects or, or reverses this law? What's What's in store in terms of this legal challenge? Obviously, no way to know for sure, but I'll, I'll present a number uh, of potential potential pathways. So the Supreme Court said that it was going to hear petitions against the law in September. Uh, it did not issue a temporary injunction against the law. So there are a few ways this can go. Um, the court 
can hear the petition and can decide that uh, either it doesn't have the authority or it doesn't want to strike the law down. Uh, if that happens, then I assume the Israeli government will move very quickly forward with the next elements of the judicial overhaul, um, having to do with basic laws, having to do with ju the Judicial Selection Committee, having to do with making it more difficult for the courts to overturn regular legislation, um, because it will see this as as a, as a, a green light and a, and a sign that uh, a sign that it's it's on safe ground. Um, the another pathway is that the court cannot strike it down entirely, but can narrow it in some ways. You know, I uh, alluded earlier to the 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 fact that this wasn't the broadest possible version, but it was pretty broad. Um, one of the reasons that it's that it's pretty broad is because it applies both to government decisions, um, sort of policy decisions, and also to government appointments. It's possible that um, the court will say, uh, you know, it's it's fine when it comes to um, policy decisions, but not to appointments or vice versa. Um, it might also say um, it makes sense to eliminate the reasonableness standard for decisions undertaken by the entire cabinet, but not by individual ministers. So there are ways that it can narrow the law, but not strike it down entirely. Uh, I think if that happens, it will be very difficult for the Israeli government to ignore the court's ruling. Uh, and then pathway number three is that the court strikes it down entirely. And if that happens, it's possible that the government will just ignore it. Um, that seems less likely to me. I think that the more likely path will be um, because this was passed as an amendment to a basic law, the more likely path that the court strikes it down will be to then immediately pass another law that eliminates the court's uh, ability to oversee basic laws. Um, the court has never struck down a basic law, um, but it has heard challenges to basic laws, um, including fairly recently. Um, so I think that if it strikes if it strikes it down entirely, the next move will be to try to remove its ability um, to have any any oversight of basic laws. Um, you know, the I guess the the fourth pathway, the the one that I just said, I don't think is I don't think is likely is the government ignoring it entirely. Um, as I said, don't think it's likely, but that's not impossible. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's the real, that's the real black hole, um, when it comes to what happens next, because we have, we have no way of knowing if that happens, um, what, what takes place, what takes place next, you know, will, will the IDF chiefs of staff listen to orders from the government or, or will the IDF chiefs of staff listen to orders from the court? Um, you know, that is when we, when we talk about. A, a constitutional crisis that can lead to absolute state collapse. That's the scenario. And so that's the one that I, I hope, you know, will be avoided at all costs. Um, so many possibilities, some bleaker than others. <laughs> um, so we have a, a question from Kay Levine and from Elliot about the vast majority of Israelis. They oppose this judicial reform um, so why has that not translated into opposition within the Knesset or greater opposition within the Knesset or a call for new elections? Um, and why have the more moderately crude members who did protest the firing of Gallant, the defense minister, what happened to them? Where are they now? So here's where the politics become tricky. Um before this government formed, you had Likud members, you know, during the cycle of five elections. 
you had Likud members who were willing to step out and challenge Prime Minister Netanyahu um, on, you know, on various things that he was doing. And it did not fare, fare well for them. Um, the first person to do it was Gidon Saar. Gidon Saar challenged Netanyahu in a Likud primary leadership. Um, at that point, by the way, Gidon Saar um, you know, was probably one of the two or three most popular Likud members based on based on Likud primaries dating back dating back mm-hmm. over a decade. Um, he challenged the prime minister. Uh, he uh, I think the I think the final if I'm remembering correctly, the final tally in that vote was was 76 to 24 in favor of Netanyahu. And Saar basically got booted out of the party um, and had to form his own party. And, you know, he's now sitting. Uh, he formed Tikva Chadasha, which then merged with Benny Gantz. And so he's now, you know, sitting in the National Unity Party, Hamachane Hamamachti, alongside Benny Gantz. He's gone from Likud. Um, Yuli Edelstein, uh, who was the, uh, had finished first in the previous Likud primary uh, and had been the Speaker of the Knesset, he announced before election number five that in the future he would be challenging Prime Minister Netanyahu. And he immediately dropped in the, in the next Likud primary from one to 17. So, you know, there is plenty of evidence. Um, for Likud politicians that going against Prime Minister Netanyahu or challenging him in some way uh, is not going to uh, not going to go well when it comes to someone's political future. The second dynamic that's taking place is that, like all politicians, these guys want to be in power, um, and there is no alternate coalition available to them. Um, if they want, if they you know, a group of Likud members said, "Hey, we are we are not happy with the direction." Uh, the things are taking the, the direction in which things are going. Um, most of them, probably all of them, are unwilling to sit in a government, um, perhaps with labor and merits. Um, they're certainly unwilling to sit in a government with Ra'am, uh, Mansour Abbas's party that was part of the Bennett Lapid coalition. So they don't view themselves as as having as having other options. And crucially, when this government took power, one of the first things it did was pass a law that said um, no faction can break away from a party unless it's uh, one third or more of that party. Um, so in the past, whereas maybe you could get five Likud members to defect and then you got 61 for the other side, because Likud has 32 seats, um, you now have to convince 11 Likud members to defect uh, if they're going to break away. That's now part of Israel's Israel's law. Um, and, you know, Getting eleven of them, um, I think, is probably impossible, um, especially given the fact that over time uh, the Likud list has become, uh, I would say, more more extreme than in the past. Um, and so, you know, you have you have a more extreme Likud combined with a law that makes it hard for moderates to break away, combined with a set of political incentives that really point against it. Um, and we are where we are. Um, and in terms of forcing new elections, uh, you know, as, as I as I noted earlier, um, there is no way to force new elections. Uh, there is no way to vote no confidence in the government and just go to elections. Um, you either have to vote in an alternate coalition at the same time, or you have to wait for the government itself to call new elections. And given the polls right now, where Likud uh, and this coalition together have 64 seats, uh, the polls that were released on Tuesday show the same parties in this coalition. If an election were held today, uh, two polls, one had them at 52 seats and one had them at 53 seats. Um, none of them are looking to, to force a new election because they're worried they're going to be wiped out. So 
you know, right now their incentives are to just keep keep on the path that they are going on and hope that um, somehow they they muddle through before they are forced to have an election in three years. So the next question is, is about Israeli society a little more broadly. How will this law and then the whole host of proposed judicial overhaul laws, how will they affect women in Israel, LGBTQ communities, Palestinians, and other minorities? So just the reasonableness law itself is going to have an impact in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you even a recent example. Um, for years now, on Yom Hazikaron, Israel's Memorial Day, there has been a, a joint memorial service organized uh, organized by Israeli and Palestinian groups uh, for both Israelis and Palestinians who have lost uh, family members and friends uh, over the course of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, every year, that joint memorial ceremony is held in Tel Aviv, and uh, Palestinians from the West Bank, who are the organizers, uh, get permits uh, to enter into Israel for that ceremony. Ahead of Yom Hazikaron this year, Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, um, decided that he was not going to issue permits for the Palestinians uh, to come from the West Bank to Israel to participate in the memorial ceremony. Um, there was a petition before the court, and the court uh, overturned Gallant's decision using the reasonableness standard. Um, and the, their logic was uh, that Galan did not uh, did not provide any rationale for doing it. Um, you know, he said he, his logic had been uh, for security purposes, but it, you know, didn't go didn't go deeper into that. And the court said every day, uh, one hundred thirty thousand Palestinians enter Israel to work. Um, the ceremony has been held for years and years. Uh, you know, this is no different this year than previous years. And so, without sort of a specific security rationale, you can't just, it's not reasonable to just say security and, and it can't happen given given how many Palestinians uh, enter Israel with permits every single day and given the history of the ceremony. And so uh, he had to reverse course. Um, now, if that were to happen today, there would be no, there would be no way to, uh, to reverse that decision. And I don't bring it up to say that Gallant was right or that Gallant was wrong. Um, I bring it up to demonstrate that that individual ministers can discriminate against different groups um, in lots of different ways. Um, you know, that was one that had to do with Palestinians. But um, if uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir in his capacity as national security minister wanted to turn around tomorrow and say, um, pride marches can't be held uh, because um, it's going to be too difficult to, to police them, um, there's no way today, uh, in the absence of reasonableness, for a court to step in and and say, based on precedent and based on you know all the various things, um, that's that's unreasonable. Um, so you know you can target at this point, um, you know not not entirely, but but in many ways you can you can target different groups um, and very specific and individual individual groups and even individuals. Um, as a result of, of the reasonableness law. And I'll also note, it's not just about folks on, you know, who are considered to be part of the left, you know, such as Palestinians or, or LGBTQ Israelis. Um, there's a famous decision from, uh, I don't remember the year now, but it's at some point in the last 15 years, um, where using the reasonableness doctrine, the court ordered uh, an Israeli municipality to build a mikvah, a ritual bath, 
um, because it had it had the funds to do it. It had the space to do it. There was there was a whole plan to do it. Um, this community did not want more religious people in its community, and so it said, "We're not going to build a mikvah." Um, and the court stepped in and said, "That is that is unfair to to observant Jews." So this isn't just about folks on the left. It's about it's about folks who are also traditionally on the right. Um, you know, without reasonableness, individual ministers have lots of power to target even individuals. Um, and take away their rights. And again, because Israel has no constitution and has no Bill of Rights, there are a few rights that are enumerated uh, in, in the basic law on human dignity, um, but nothing nearly as expansive as you have here uh, or as you have in other constitutional democracies. So the next, the next question really is about external uh, considerations. Jamie's wondering if there's concern that the internal divisions that are now so publicly evident in Israel, um, if that will invite enemies of Israel to take advantage of the moment. Yes, and I would say that we've already been seeing that for months, uh, particularly on the northern front. Um, so in public comments, Hassan Nasrallah has been the leader of Hezbollah, uh, has been uh, saying now uh, really for the past six, seven months, um, that the chaos inside of Israel is what's, is what's finally going to bring down the Zionist entity. Um, and it's not just rhetoric. Hezbollah has been doing a number of things on the northern border that are um, provocations that we really haven't seen uh, in almost two decades. Um, a few months ago, Hezbollah sent an operative over the border uh, all the way down to Megiddo, um, who set a roadside bomb that, uh, that badly, badly injured uh, one Israeli. Uh, when the IDF finally caught up to him, you know, they found him in a car loaded with explosives and, and guns. And, you know, again, this was a Hezbollah operative who was, was directly sent across the border. Um, Hezbollah has sent up, has set up a number of, uh, of tents across, uh, across the blue line, which is the, the border recognized by the UN, um, between Israel and Lebanon. Um, Hezbollah removed one tent across the blue line uh, a few weeks ago, but one is still there with Hezbollah operatives literally sitting in Israeli territory. Um, there have been uh, there have been efforts to cross the the border fence um, to fly drones across the border fence. Um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Israel ended up uh, using stun grenades against Hezbollah operatives who were trying to uh, who were trying to cut a hole in the in the border fence. Um, none of this is stuff that went on uh, before a few months ago, um, and it is directly tied to this perception that Israel is falling apart, that the IDF is going to collapse, that society is, is too divided to uh, to really keep keep the state afloat. Um, and so, you know, it, it's Hezbollah, uh, you know, it's it's gonna it's gonna be other Iranian proxies. Um, you know, they they literally view this as as their moment and uh, they view this as confirmation that everything they've been saying for decades is true, that uh, that Israel, you know, is is imminently gonna be gonna be wiped out. Um, and so I think it's it's very dangerous, you know, in, in this moment uh, from a security perspective. And we are seeing challenges uh, to Israel that we have not seen before. Michael, I have one last question for you from from our community, from Patricia. How do we express our support for the Israeli people right now? What can we do? So aside from aside from raising our voices, aside from making sure that uh, our American Jewish leaders and institutions um, support Israel in the streets, uh, I think there there are tangible things we can do. Um, we can continue going to Israel um, and 
you know, seeing what's happening on the ground for ourselves and, you know, forming, forming our own firsthand opinions and going to the protests and standing alongside Israelis in solidarity and showing them that, uh, that American Jews, American Jews have their back. Um, there are all sorts of organizations in Israel, uh, that are, um, that are working to try and, you know, not only, not only, uh, blunt some of the impacts of the judicial overhaul, but, to, to make Israel a, a better, more, more just, more democratic, more equitable place. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to list them here because I, you know, try, trying, trying to, trying to, trying to stay as, uh, as objective uh, as I can given, given everything, but, you know, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to, to do research and find organizations that, um, that speak to you and, um, support those organizations. And I would say most of all, uh, I'll, I'll repeat what I, what I said earlier. Um, we should not turn our backs on Israel. We should not. We should not decide that this is this is not a place that we identify with. We should not say um, that this is something that has no connection to our lives. We should not say that going forward, Israel and Zionism are not going to be parts of our American Jewish identity. I think this is a time to cling even even more strongly to our Zionism, to um, cling even more strongly to Israel, and to demonstrate that our support for Israel is about this vision of Zionism um, that is Israel as Jewish and democratic and that we are not going to turn our backs on it, even if it even if that vision is is under assault right now in Israel. We have to fight for the vision of Israel and for the Jewish state that we want because we are Jews um, and we have a stake there and we should not give it up so easily. Michael, I want to thank you so much for the generosity of your time, your wisdom, your spirit. Um, we are extremely lucky to have you um both here at central and also um in our in our um, broader jewish community i want to also thank all of you for hanging in there with us for this hour getting up early and and showing up and i want to encourage you to really under listen carefully to michael's last comment and also tell us how we can help you become better informed We'll be happy to create programs to think about resources. Uh, remember that the Union for Reform Judaism has many resources um, available and is really fighting in the streets on this issue, um, on the broader question of religious pluralism in Israel. There's a lot of really good work being done. And I think the first step is for us to all stay informed. Um, thanks again to Rabbi Sarah Berman and to um, Marina Nebo, who has kept us um, technically connected uh, uh, this morning. Um, I hope you all um, have a good day and uh, thanks again. Thanks, everyone. And uh, I hope you all have a meaningful Tisha B'Av. Thank you for listening to this edition of Central Synagogue's podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you're in the loop on future episodes. And please follow us on social media or watch our live stream at centralsynagogue.org, our Facebook page, or on national cable at the Jewish Broadcasting Service. Thanks again for joining us. Mm-hmm.